0: Good morning, everybody. It's so good to see you here this morning. Uh, I'm always happy to see all your bright faces on Sunday mornings. This week is a big travel week, and so it's possible that we have someone joining us uh, virtually today. It's even possible maybe some people are on the road right now watching us from their car. That would be pretty cool. And so for those who are watching us from your car, a special welcome to you. Maybe you're viewing us from your hotel room. So I know that this week is a full week of vacation for some of the students in school districts. And so we have a number of people traveling. So we welcome them. Thank you all for being here and for worshiping with us this past Wednesday our life group had a great conversation. We had a great discussion uh, on last Sunday's sermon on the Old Testament law. It was a really deep, uh, meaningful, uh, memorable conversation, so I really appreciated that. And I want to take a moment to recap uh, some of what we said last Sunday, because it will actually segue into what we're going to talk about in today's particular subject, if you were here last week, maybe you might recall, I posed the question to you, what is our relationship as Christ followers in the 21st century to the Old Testament law? What is our relationship as Christ followers in the 21st century to the Old Testament law? And another way to ask that question is, uh, are we required To obey the Old Testament law? And to be even more specific, are we required to obey the Ten Commandments? And the answer that I gave may have been a surprise to some of you. If you recall, I used the illustration of driving in Canada, right? I said, let's say I was driving in Canada one day, and I actually was driving in Canada over the summer. So let's say I was driving in Canada, and I was driving a little bit too fast. And so let's say the Royal Canadian Police pulled me over. My question that I posed to all of you last Sunday was, would the police officer in Canada issue me a Canadian ticket or an American ticket? Now, it could well be that both, both speed limits in Canada and here in the United States are very similar. And maybe at some point they were almost, in fact, identical. The question is, if I was driving in Canada, would the officer issue me a Canadian ticket or a, an American ticket? Right? Think about that. If I was driving in Canada, I wouldn't go to the Canadian police officer. Officer, please, please, I wasn't driving that fast because in America, the speed limit was only five miles per hour more. So please, just know that I was obeying the American law. He'd say, no, 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 sir. You're driving in a different country, so you abide by our laws here. And so the answer, of course, is obvious. He'd issue me a Canadian ticket. So remember that the 600-plus laws that were given to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, they were given specifically to a people in the Old Testament. When Jesus came, he fulfilled the law. He ushered in a new law, and that is the law of Christ, the law of Christ and the Old Testament law. If you have the law of Christ here and the Old Testament law here, they may look similar at many points. In fact, there are elements of what we would call moral laws that transcend all time and all space. So, for example, murder is just as wrong today as it was in the Old Testament. Same with adultery, same with stealing, and so on and so on. But it's important to keep in mind that as New Testament believers, as followers of Jesus Christ today in the 21st century, when I sin, when I transgress the law, I am breaking the law of Christ, not the law Of the Old Testament, even though they may at times appear similar, because Christ fulfilled the Old Testament law. So, as we consider the Old Testament law, we can be confident that it is God's fully inspired Word, as is the entire Word of God. We must also recognize that we, as New Testament believers, we are to obey the law of Christ. We have been given a new law. And the law of Christ is to love God with our entire being and to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. And so you see, Jesus actually took the entire Old Testament law. He kind of summarized it, but then he elevated it to a whole new level, right? That's why I said last week, when Jesus said, you have heard it said, right, do not murder. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But then Jesus countered that by saying, well, if you are simply angry at your brother, if you simply look at someone in lust, you are guilty. And so we, as New Testament believers, we abide by the law of Christ, which is the law of love. And that brings us now to the subject for today, And that is a subject of parables. Today we're devoting an entire message on the genre of parables because this is an important genre. The title of my message this morning is this. It's The Merciful King and the Unforgiving Servant. A Study of Parables. The Merciful King and the Unforgiving Servant. A Study of Parables. When I was going to school for my master's degree... At Talbot School of Theology, some years ago, all right, many, many years ago. One of my professors, he loved to tell jokes in class. So he would be lecturing, he'd be writing on the whiteboard, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he would pause, turn around, and then he would just tell a joke that had nothing to do with his lecture. He would just tell a joke to the class, out of the blue. Now, I will say some of his jokes were entertaining. Uh, a lot of them we just kind of laughed just to humor him <laughs> to get a good grade. But, so he would tell jokes. But the problem was, of the 30-some of us in the class, nearly half of the students were born in other countries. Now, these students, they could speak English very well. They could understand it very well they could write it very well. But you know this, if you don't grow up in a certain culture, even if you can speak and understand the language, jokes are very difficult because you don't catch the, the idioms, the slang, the nuances. And so here's our professor writing and then stopping and telling us a joke, and then a few of us would just chuckle, ha, <laughs> ha, right? The rest of the class looked puzzled. In fact, some of them, I think they tried to take notes thinking it was part of his lecture. If you are not native to a language, it is so difficult to get the joke because the whole point of a joke is to get caught in the moment. A joke is funny when the hearer immediately responds and understands the punchline. But a joke can only catch you if you know the context, if you know the background. One of the obstacles that you and I face here in the 21st century is that we don't always understand the points of reference. And so here we are in the 21st century, The Bible was written in a different time, different space, with different cultures in mind, maybe with different nuances in language, different idioms. And so when you and I read some passages in the Bible, sometimes they don't make a whole lot of sense until they are explained to us. And I know that at times uh, it's difficult to try to explain a joke to someone, right? Maybe someone's grown up in the culture and still doesn't get it, and so you have to actually explain the joke to the person, and you find it so frustrating because part of the, the, part of the joy of a joke is that they get it, but if you have to explain it, you're like, oh great, you know, I have to go through this whole explanation in order for you to understand. But the challenge for you and I, for us, for you and me, is that we often approach the Bible without knowing the points of reference and the context. And this morning, we come to a genre in the Bible that presents that type of challenge for us. It's a genre of parables. But I believe this. I believe if we are well-equipped, if we learn how to read parables, we can recapture the punch that was intended. I firmly believe that. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the first part of our message talking about parables in general, and then we'll move to a specific parable. We'll look closely at one particular parable. And so again, the title of my message is The Merciful King and the Unforgiving Servant, A Study of Parables. As I look ahead to this Thursday, Thanksgiving Thursday, many of us will celebrate with our loved ones, right? We'll eat a lot, then we'll nap a lot, and then we'll eat some more, and probably nap some more, maybe watch some sports on television. But it's possible that you and I will have opportunities on Thanksgiving Day to express what we're thankful for. Maybe you have a tradition in your families to gather around the table, and you all share one thing that you're thankful for my encouragement to us all is this. This Thursday, as followers of Jesus Christ, we all share one thing in common. And that is that our sins have been forgiven. Our sins have been forgiven. And those sins were bought with a price on the cross. We just sang those words a few minutes ago. And so, as we work our way through the passage later on, I trust that you will find encouragement that you'll be challenged by God's word to go into Thursday with the right mindset. For now, we begin with a discussion of parables in general. And again, I believe that you and I we can recapture that punch if we learn how to read parables. And so, I'm going to ask you two questions as we begin our time, and that's this, the what. The what of parables and the why. Why did Jesus speak in parables? And so, first of all, let's talk about the what. What are parables? Well, here's a simple definition for you. Parables are stories, especially those of Jesus, told to provide a vision of life, especially life in God's kingdom. I'll say that again. Parables are stories, especially those of Jesus told to provide a vision of life, especially life in God's kingdom. Now, the word parable, it literally means to throw alongside, a comparison. So a parable is a story used to provide a comparison. It compares this to that. And and the key to understanding parables is this. Just keep in mind, what is the main point There's one main point whenever we look at parables. So even though there may be all kinds of details, the important thing to remember is what is the main point of that parable. I'll give you an example here. Let's turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark 4, verses 30 to 32. Mark chapter 4, verses 30 to 32. As you make your way there to Mark chapter 4, after I read this passage, Keep your place there because we'll come back and read another passage in Mark chapter 4 as well. But for now, let's go to Mark 4, verses 30 to 32. Jesus said, How can I describe the kingdom of God? What story should I use to illustrate it? It is like a mustard seed planted in the ground. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of all garden plants. It grows long branches, and birds can make nests in its shade. So, here we see the comparison of a very small seed initially to a large plant eventually. And the one point, the one main point, is made by this simple comparison. And here's the main point of that parable. The main point is this. Something as big as the kingdom of God had such humble beginnings. Something as grand, as spectacular, as big as the kingdom of God, of which you and I are part of today, had such humble beginnings. If you and I walked along the road and we came across a mustard seed, chances are, you would walk right over the seed without even knowing that you walked over a mustard seed because it is that small. Here, take a look. This gives you an idea of the size of a mustard seed. On the ground, virtually invisible. You might even step on it and not even know that you stepped on a mustard seed. The life and ministry of Jesus, it began like this mustard seed. When Jesus came to earth, he was born to a working-class set of parents. He was born in a place where animals went to feed. When he began his ministry, his handful of followers didn't have the strongest resumes. But with them, he would forever change the world. Something as tiny as a mustard seed would grow to transform entire world. So that is the what of parables. They're stories used to provide a vision of life in God's kingdom. Here's another important question, the why. Why would Jesus speak in parables? Some might argue, wouldn't it make much more sense for Jesus just to speak directly? Why would he use parables And why would he use things that would often result in puzzled looks, much like my fellow students listening to a joke in class? Wouldn't it make more sense for Jesus just to teach everything directly? I mean, can you imagine if we spoke to one another in parables all the time? What if you came up to me? you said, Tim, uh, how are you doing today? And my response to you is, well my life is like a mustard seed and it's uh, implanted in the ground waiting to be harvested. Yes, you would laugh and you would walk away thinking, is Tim okay? If all we did was answer each other in riddles, we'd be like so confused and so frustrated with each other. So why would Jesus go around speaking in these kinds of, quote, riddles? Well, the answer is given to us directly in Mark chapter 4. Look at verses 10 through 12. Mark chapter 4, 10 through 12, Jesus gives us the answer. He says, Later, when Jesus was alone with the 12 disciples and with the others who were gathered around, they asked him what the parables meant. He replied, You are permitted to understand the secret of the kingdom of God. But I use parables for everything I say to outsiders, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. When they see what I do, they will learn nothing. When they hear what I say, they will not understand. Otherwise, they will turn to me and be forgiven. So Jesus tells his disciples that the secret or the mystery has been given to them, and he implies it has not been given to those on the outside. In other words, the unbelieving Pharisees, the unbelieving multitudes. These were those who persistently declined the grace of God. Jesus gave them every opportunity to listen, to learn, and to accept. But time and time again, they declined. And not only that, they said, Jesus, you are demon-possessed. And they plotted to kill him. You know that the book of John says Jesus came to his own and yet his own received him not. That's why Jesus spoke to them in parables. As long as unbelief continued, those on the outside would be excluded from the opportunity to be further instructed. I want you to listen to this quote. These are some penetrating words from commentator William Lane. Follow along as I read this quote. That the kingdom has come in an initial phase in the presence of Jesus can be discerned only through faith, which is to say, by the grace of God. Jesus' presence, therefore, means disclosure and veiling. It releases both grace and judgment. It's disclosure to those who will listen, who have eyes to see and ears to hear, but it will become a veil to those who refuse to listen. Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God. The parables explained the nature of that kingdom. In other words, those parables explained the lifestyle and the relationships that were to take place in that kingdom. So, church, that brings us now to the parable of the unforgiving servant turn with me to matthew chapter 18 we'll look at verses 21 to 35 matthew 18 i'm going to read this passage in its entirety all the way from 21 down to verse 35 i encourage you to follow along there in your bibles starting in verse 21 Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. My friends, uh, as we enter this Thanksgiving week, it's only fitting that we focus our attention on this parable today. And I think that's going to become evident as we unfold this important story. We just read this. The immediate context is that Peter approaches Jesus and asks Jesus how many times he's required to forgive someone who sins Against him. And check this out. Peter doesn't even let Jesus speak yet. Peter decides, I'm going to offer my own suggestion. How many times, Lord? Oh, up to seven times? Now, you have to understand, at that time, in that culture, the standard practice was to forgive somebody three times. You see, because in that culture, it was understood I can forgive you once. I can forgive you twice. Maybe three times. But after three times, you are truly unrepentant and you're not going to change your ways. That was a standard practice in that culture. So you have to understand Peter is thinking, oh, uh, I'm a generous person. Lord, Up to seven times? At that moment, Peter is waiting. He's waiting for Jesus to pat him on the back and congratulate him. But this is where Peter gets caught. You might say the joke is on him because Jesus says, No, Peter. 77 times. Now, in your translation, it might say 77 times. Some of your translations might say 70 times 7, which, if you do the math, is 490. Now, that's a huge discrepancy, 77 times or 70 times 7. Well, the reason for this is that the editors of your translation They relied on one of two documents. Do you remember several weeks ago when we talked about Bible translations? We said that your editors, the editors of your particular translation, they've had to make uh, decisions. And they would use certain documents and rely on those. So, depending on your Bible translation, your editor either referred to the Hebrew Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, or... To a document known as the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, it's important to know this that during that era, during Jesus' day, it was common to see both. Both the Hebrew Bible and the Septuagint. Those are commonly used. And so today, scholars are not in full agreement, which is why some of your translations will say 77 times or 70 times 7. But if you notice in your Bible, you might have a footnote there. And if you have a footnote, and if you look at that footnote, if yours says 77, the footnote will say or 70 times 7 and vice versa. All that to say that scholars today are not 100% sure. But here's, here's the encouraging thing about this the number is not the most important element in this dialogue. In fact, the whole point of Jesus saying this particular number, whether it's 77 or 70 times 7, the whole point is that he was communicating to Peter that whatever number Peter thinks is generous, it's infinitely more. Peter, if you think seven times, is generous? No. It is an infinitely more amount. In other words, forgiveness is not about keeping score. It's never about keeping score. Okay, I've forgiven you once, I've forgiven you twice. Uh, five times, that, that's too many, friend. I've had it up to here no more forgiveness. Jesus communicates to Peter that it is not about keeping score. And to illustrate this point, he gives the parable. One servant owed the king a large amount of money. My translation said 10,000 bags of gold. Some of your translations might have said 10,000 talents. If you do the math, the equivalent of that amount today, you ready? Would be hundreds of millions of dollars. Some experts estimate into the billions of dollars. There was no way on earth that the servant was going to be able to even pay back a fraction of that amount. That's why the king had compassion, and he released him from his debt. And then the servant goes out, and then he seeks out. he actively seeks out some fellow servant who owes him money, a hundred silver coins. If you do the math, that's the equivalent of about 4,000 dollars. Hundreds of millions upon billions of dollars, $4,000. The unforgiving servant chokes his fellow servant, throws him in jail. And the irony is, this unforgiving servant, he puts his fellow servant in a spot where his fellow servant could never, ever pay back his money. So he would never, ever get that back ever again. So church, as we look at this parable, what's the message that Jesus was communicating to Peter? It's this. And this is a message that I hope we can take with us into this week. The message that Jesus communicated to Peter by sharing this parable is this. The unforgiving servant's refusal to release his fellow servant from death from debt, um, debt shows that he did not truly appreciate his own forgiveness. I'll say that again. The unforgiving servant's refusal to release his fellow servant from debt shows that he did not truly appreciate his own forgiveness. The unforgiving servant begged the king and the king released him. You see, because the king knew his servant could never pay that back. Even though his servant said, I will pay it all back. The king knew he could never pay it back. That's why the king didn't say, okay, I'm going to give you a 30-year loan plus interest. The king didn't say, I'm going to give you a 300-year loan plus interest. There's no way on earth the servant could ever pay back a fraction of that debt. Church, we could never pay back God for the debt we owe. Never. That's why on this Sunday, heading into Thanksgiving week, the greatest thing that you and I can be thankful for is God's forgiveness of our sins. Can I hear an amen? That's the greatest thing that we can be thankful for is God's forgiveness of our sins because we have hundreds of millions of dollars worth of sin that we could never, ever pay back. And so as Christ followers... If we are the most forgiven people in the world, shouldn't we then be the most forgiving people in the world? How can we not do for others what God has already done for us? And I know, I know that the act of forgiving someone can be such a painful process. I know that. I know that firsthand, and you know that firsthand. Forgiving someone will be the most painful thing you will ever have to do in your lifetime. Because we've all been hurt by a loved one. We've all been hurt by a spouse, a parent, a child, a sibling. We've all been hurt by friends who may no longer be friends. We've been hurt by co-workers, fellow church members. Every one of us has been hurt and hurt deeply. So how can we learn to forgive when it's so painful to forgive? Well, I believe that we need to have the proper mindset. And it begins with this. It begins with knowing that we cannot forgive on our own. We can never forgive on our own. True biblical forgiveness begins with an understanding that the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us to to forgive and gives us the power to forgive. And that's why if we are not walking in the Spirit we will not learn to forgive others biblically. Here's what will happen. We'll end up dealing with conflict the way that the world, the way that those who do not know Jesus Christ deal with conflict. Here's what will happen. We'll lash out. We'll get even, right? You know that phrase, don't get mad, get even. That's the motto of someone who does not know Jesus Christ. So we'll get even. We might even want to make the other person hurt as much as that person has hurt us. And then when we're even, then we can move on. That's the way of those who do not know Jesus Christ. So that is why it's critical for us to know that forgiveness begins with an understanding that we cannot do it on our own. We must rely upon the Holy Spirit. I cannot in my own human ability do so. I want you to listen to this honest prayer of one Christ follower. It really just kind of stopped me in my tracks. This person wrote this, God, I cannot forgive that person on my own strength. I do not want to forgive that person, at least until he has suffered enough. But your word warns me that unforgiveness will eat away at my soul and build a wall between you and me. Lord, please change my heart and soften it. Change me so that I can forgive and love the way you have forgiven and loved me. So you see, forgiveness, it starts with God, and apart from Him, we cannot forgive others. We just cannot. But once we understand that, we must then recognize that forgiveness is an act of the will. We cannot do it on our own. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit, and then We must recognize that it is an act of the will. So, church, here's where worldly forgiveness and biblical forgiveness go in opposite directions. Worldly forgiveness, biblical forgiveness. And many Christians, they never learn how to forgive biblically. They go the way of the world. So in a worldly sense, forgiveness Is often tied to how we feel. So, how we feel often dictates whether I will forgive that person or not. But just imagine if God said, Tim, today I don't feel like forgiving you. Tim, you caught me on a bad day. Tim, come back tomorrow, maybe I'll be in a better mood. We never approach God with that type of fear. He is ready and eager to forgive the moment we come to Him in repentance. So how can we not do for others what God has already done for us? If we do so, It's basically stinginess on our part. The will to forgive must transcend the emotional desire not to forgive. The will to forgive must transcend the emotional desire not to forgive. We must not wait until we feel like forgiving. That's what the world does. They wait until they feel like it. You know, in a worldly sense also, forgiveness is often tied with uh, forgetting. Right? There's another phrase, forgive and forget. As if uh, we forget about someone's sin like we forget where our keys are. Huh, where are they? I can't find them. So in a worldly sense, we think, oh, over time, I will just forget about that sin, passively. That's not how biblical forgiveness works. You see, biblically speaking, we choose not to actively hold it against that person. It's not a passive forgetfulness. God doesn't forget, okay? Like, uh, uh, oh, my child... I forgot about your sins so uh you're off the hook i can't remember them so you you can just go your way now no god actively chooses not to hold those sins against us that's why in isaiah chapter 43 in verse 25 it says this i yes i alone will blot out your sins for my own sake and will never think of them again god tells the nation of israel that he will never think of their sins this is active, not passive forgetting. He doesn't passively forget. He actively chooses not to hold it against them. So that's why forgiveness is an act of the will. As painful as it is, it is an act of the will. And by the way, when we forgive somebody, I want you to know this. It's important to recognize that The offense is not okay. We're not excusing the offense. An accident is okay. An offense is not. So, for example, if I'm walking down the hall and you accidentally bump my shoulder and you say, oh, I'm so sorry, I will say, that's okay. It was an accident. There was no ill intent. That's why it's okay to say it's okay. On the other hand, when somebody sins against us and apologizes, the proper response is not, that's okay. The proper response is, I forgive you. Because you are not excusing the sin. What you're doing is you're releasing the person from the debt of that sin. But sin has consequences. King David suffered the consequences of his sins, the consequences of murder, betrayal, adultery, even though he had been forgiven. When we forgive someone, we don't excuse the sin We release the person from the debt of that sin. Now, here's a common question that often comes up when we talk about the subject of forgiveness. And this is an important point. The question is this. Can we forgive someone who doesn't ask for forgiveness or who doesn't think he or she needs forgiveness? It's an important question. Can we forgive someone who doesn't think, who doesn't ask for forgiveness, who doesn't think he or she needs to be forgiven? The answer is yes, we can. And yes, we must. Why? Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't wait. We actively choose to forgive. Now, please understand, this does not mean that you go up to that person and you say, hey, I know you think you did nothing wrong and you're not going to ask for forgiveness, but I'm going to forgive you anyway. Because you did wrong, but I'm a nice person and so I'm going to forgive you. Ha! Don't do that. When we forgive someone who does not think he or she needs to be forgiven or doesn't ask for it, here's how we do it. We we forgive that person in the quietness of our heart. And we release that person from the debt of sin so that there will be no barrier between us and God and we will find healing in our soul because it sure beats walking around in the bitterness and resentment of the other person. Now, will will we be released from that pain instantly? Not necessarily. For some, it may take a lifetime, but I believe over time that God can release us from the pain, and the suffering. But it begins with an understanding that we must act upon what we know to be the will of God to release that person from the debt of sin. And while the full effect of forgiveness can only happen when that person recognizes his or her sin, here's what we do. When we release that person from the debt of sin, we no longer become judge. And we give that up to God. As we enter this Thanksgiving week, it's quite possible that there's someone in your life that that needs your forgiving, that has hurt you deeply, There's no better week than this one and no better day than today than to forgive, to release that person from the debt of sin. The longer we hold on to that bitterness and the longer we hold that person in debt, the more pain we will experience. By God's grace, I believe He can free us from that pain. I wanna leave you with one final encouragement from Ephesians chapter four, verse 32. The Apostle Paul writes this, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. I wanna go full circle back to Peter for a moment. Remember, it was Peter who said, Lord, up to seven times? Am I a good person if I forgive my brother seven times? Thankfully, Peter matured. And later, in one of his letters to his fellow Christians, he said this. He said, out of darkness and into the marvelous light, we have been moved. We have been moved from darkness into light. And as children of the light, we can live in obedience to the law of Christ, the law of love. So that's my encouragement to us as we enter this important week. Would you bow with me? Would you take a moment in the quietness? your heart. Maybe even think of a person, a person who needs your forgiveness. There's no better time than now to release that person from the debt of sin. And it's possible maybe this week you might see that person. And you can carry out what you have done in your heart just now. Thank you, God, for forgiveness. We could never, ever, in a million years, pay back what we owe you. But you have erased our debt. It's been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And you have given us a new law, the law of Christ, which is to love you with our entire being, to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. Help us through the power of the Holy Spirit to be obedient to that call today, this week, and every week. And all God's people said, Amen.